At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. You're listening to the Gospel Community Church Sermons Podcast, where we go through books of the Bible, verse by verse and line by line, to hear the truth that God's Word has to encourage, discipline, and bless us in our daily lives. We've not met before. My name is Kurt McDonald. I have the great privilege of being one of the pastors here uh, at the church. And this morning, uh, it is my honor to bring to you God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he add his blessing to it. Well, church family, I am happy and excited this morning because, that's right, I have a cup. Now, you might not be able to see this, but this cup says, calm down, this ain't God's first rodeo. So thank you, Mindy, for giving me a cup with uh, one of my slogans from this series. I appreciate that very much. Uh, Church family, hear the word of the Lord from Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 7. It says this, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on you and has chosen you, for you are the fewest of all people. Church family, this is good news this morning. What this scripture is telling us is that we are the people of God. And the reason that we are the people of God is because God has chosen to to set his love upon us, not because of anything that we have done, not because of any effort that we have put in, not because we got up early this morning and did our devotions and all that sort of thing. God decided to set his love upon us because he loved us, period. That's how that argument goes. Why does God love us? He loves us because he loves us. He has chosen us to be his people because we are his people. As a matter of fact, you can summarize the entire Bible this way. God preserves and redeems his people. So, so you, can, you can say, okay, the, the, the title of the book, Bible, right? Subtitle, God preserves and redeems his people. That is the story of the entire Bible. The story of the entire Bible is God making for himself a particular people group. Here's what I want to do. I'm going to go through the entire Bible. I'm going to ask 10 questions. Don't worry. The 10 questions all have the same answer, but I'm about to take us through the entire Bible. 10 questions. These 10 questions all have the same answer. Are you ready? Here we go. Question number one. Why does God tell us and or tell the serpent in Genesis 3 that he shall bruise your head, but you shall bruise his heel? Answer, because of his plan to preserve and redeem his people. Why does God tell Noah to build a boat? Well, because of his plan to preserve and redeem a specific people group. Why does God promise Abraham that he will make him a great nation? Because of his plan to preserve and redeem his particular people. Now on to Exodus. Are y'all still with me? Why does God have Moses lead God's people out of Egypt? Because of his plan to preserve and to redeem his people. On to Leviticus. Why does God give such a long list of strange and peculiar practices in the book of Leviticus? You ever read Leviticus? There's some weird stuff in there. And the reason that he does that is because he wants them, his people, to be unlike any other people so that he can preserve and redeem them. On to Numbers. Why does God provide them... 
40 years in the desert when all they did was grumble and complain and rebel? Well, it was because of his plan to preserve and redeem his people. On to Deuteronomy. Why does he raise up Joshua to lead his people into the promised land? Because of his plan to preserve and to redeem his people. Now, we could go through all the rest of the Old Testament books, but you get down to the heart of it, the core of it. It is God's plan to preserve and redeem his people. Let's move on uh, to the New Testament. Why does God the Father send Jesus to die on the cross in our place for our sins? It is because of his plan to preserve and to redeem his people. Why does God the Father and God the Son send the Holy Spirit to build the church? It is because of his plan to preserve and redeem his people. And why is Jesus going to return on the last final and great day to make all things new? Because of his plan to preserve and redeem his people. This is the story of the Bible. This is God's plan. This is what God is doing in the world. This is where all of history is headed towards. If, if you're looking and watching the news and asking the question, what in the world is going on in our world today? God is acting out his plan to preserve a particular people group so that he can redeem them. This is what God is doing. Here's the big implication if you're taking notes. If you belong to God, you belong to his people. If you belong to God, you belong to his people. You are a part of a particular people group set aside, set apart by God himself, which God intends to preserve. God's going to preserve you, church family. God, God is going to bring you through, though you feel like you're not going to make it through. God, time and time again, has been preserving his people for the purpose of redemption. God is going to bring you through. He's preserving you, and he's going to redeem you. It's what he's continued to do time and time again. So if you belong to God, you belong to a particular people group. There is no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. The, the problem is we live in a culture which praises individualism. Our, our culture loves the, uh, the, the, the entrepreneur that made it all by themselves, right? They, they picked themselves up by their bootstraps and they, you know, they, had, they started out with nothing and yet they ended up a billionaire, right? We, we love that story. Our culture loves that type of story. That's why it's oh, time and time again, it, over and over and over, it's in the films that we watch. The, the one single hero takes down the entire corrupt organization. You know, you, you've seen that, that movie theme play out a thousand times, or it, it's even invaded into our pop psychology, which says you have everything that you need within yourself, right? That's, that's popular pop psychology. You have everything you need within yourself. When, when the Bible says that what is within you is a heart and your heart is wicked and deceitful. And, and so th this, this idea of, of um, you know, living out your own truth or, or like whatever that means, but, but this, this is a, an idea about individualism, that it's, it's about being a rugged individual when God's word is teaching us that we're not rugged individuals. We're actually a part of a people which God is preserving and redeeming. Amen. This is the story uh, of, of the Bible. I've been, I've been obsessed with this show uh, that, that came on. The show is called Alone. Anybody watched it? Okay, yes, yes, okay, I'm, I'm not alone in watching alone. Now, here's, if, if you haven't seen the show, here's what it is. It's a reality TV show. They take survival experts and they drop them in the middle of nowhere. They, they have like a, a hatchet and a toothpick and, and like that's it. That's all they got. 
And so they drop him in the middle of nowhere, and they have to survive alone. And while they're surviving alone, they're actually like filming themselves uh, along, along the way. And it, it's, a, it's a really, really incredible show. But as, as they continue on in their journey, they're, they're documenting uh, this long journey of them having to build their own shelter, trap their own food, all this kind of thing. And, and most of them, they simply can't keep up their, their, their calorie intake and the amount of work that they're having to do with building a shelter and trapping and all that sort of thing. They're, they're losing all this body fat. They're like starving to death and, and they're battling um, all of, of the elements. And, and, and the truth is, so many believers are just like that. So many believers are starving to death, spiritually speaking, in the wilderness when there is fresh bread within the church. So, so many people are, are trying to survive alone when that's simply not how God designed us to be. God designed us to be a part of a people group. As a matter of fact, I was watching one episode and they, they do these periodical medical checks on the, on the contestants that are in the show and the, and the, the, the people who uh, are, are there, they, they actually reserve the right, the doctors reserve the right to pull those contestants out of the, the contest if their health is just like, if they've lost all their body fat and, and all this sort of thing. And in the last show that I watched, this, this lady had frostbitten feet, had lost all of her body fat, was literally starving to death. And the medical team decided to pull her out of the contest. And she continued to in, insist that she could make it on her own. If you're, if you're taking notes, isolation from the people of God is dangerous because it gives you the illusion that you actually can live the Christian life alone. We're created to be a part of a people. We're, we're created to be in community with, with one another, loving uh, each other. There's no such thing in Christianity as it's just me and Jesus. It's not just you and Jesus. It's, it's you, Jesus, and his people. Listen, you don't get me without getting my wife. If, if you say, you know, Kirk, I, I think you're, you know, great guy, whatever, but I'm just really not interested in, in Chelsea at all. And, and as a matter of fact, I really don't think that she's that important. You lost me. I'm out. I'm out on that deal. In the same way, you don't get Jesus without his church. Let me say that again. You don't get Jesus without his church. Ephesians 5 tells husbands, what does it tell husbands? That we are to lay our lives down for our wives. We are to sacrifice ourselves or, or give ourselves in service. We are to lay our life down for our wife just as Christ does the church. So Jesus' death on the cross was not just for a bunch of individual Christians out there, but it was for the church as a whole so that we might be his people that he is preserving and ultimately will, will redeem. Okay, we got to get to the text today, and I want to ask you this question as we begin. Here's the question that I want us to ask this morning. If we have received his salvation, have we embraced his people? If we have received his salvation, if, if, if we have come to the saving knowledge of who Jesus Christ is, then have we embraced his people? Have we wrapped our arms around other brothers and sisters in Christ and said, I'm not going to live the Christian life alone. I am embracing God's salvation. And in addition, I'm going to embrace God's people because God has been about creating a people for his own possession. Just jump to, jump to verse six in our text today, because I, I want you to see the heart of Esther this morning. Look, just jump to verse six. It says, for how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to who? 
my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of, of my kindred? Esther is safe at this point in the story. Esther's safe. The evil Haman is out of the kingdom. They, they've hanged him on the gallows. Esther is safe, but she is not satisfied with her own salvation. She is desperate for the salvation of her people. She, she could have just said, I'm good. You know, I'm, I'm fine now. Haman's out of the kingdom. As a matter of fact, she gets all of Haman's kingdom, all, all of his estate. Everything that Haman had is turned over to Esther, and then she in turn gives it to Mordecai. Mordecai is raised up to the second in command, Haman's old position. So Esther and Mordecai, they're fine. Yet she risked, again, risked her life to go back to the king and plead for her people. You see, the book of Esther is about making visible the invisible sovereign hand of God. But what is that sovereign hand of God doing? The sovereign hand of God through the king, the crooked king, through a corrupt official like Haman, through an imperfect person like Esther. What is the sovereign hand of God doing in this story? Well, it's saving and preserving his people for their ultimate redemption. Okay, we got to get to the text today. Go ahead and get Esther out in front of you. We're in Esther chapter 8. You need to get the text out in front of you so you can make sure I'm not making it up as I go. Let's just, let's travel through this text this morning. Y'all still with me? Okay, it says, on that day, okay, what, what day is that? Well, uh, that, that would be the day that Haman was ordered to parade Mordecai through the streets and to honor him. You remember that from last week? It, on, on this same day, this is the day of the second feast that Esther had prepared. You remember the two feasts? Just, just catching us all up here. On the day when Haman's plan to kill the Jews was uncovered, the day that the king ordered Haman be impaled on the gallows that he built for Mordecai, it was on that day. This is kind of a big day. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. Um, Herodotus, who is a historian who's writing at this time, records for us that when they discovered traitors uh, in the Persian Empire, all of their estate, everything they had was actually turned over to the kingdom. So they killed the traitor and the, the kingdom would just assume all of their assets. And so what's happened here is that King Ahasuerus takes all of Haman's assets, his estate, all his money, all his stuff, and he gives it to honor uh, Esther. He gives it to Esther. And Mordecai came before the king for, listen to this, Esther had told what he was to her. So all of this time, this guy who actually saved the king's life, Mordecai, the king doesn't know that this is Esther's cousin and that he actually adopted her and, and has raised her like his own. And so I don't think that Esther simply said, this is my cousin and my adopted father. I think Esther is wise here because she realizes uh, the prime minister position is kind of open right now. And so she likely says, hey, this is my adopted father. As a matter of fact, he, he's been a great advisor for me. Behind the scenes, he has really given me some great advice. He's, he's really helped me out, and, uh, you know, he, he's, he's really good with organizational structure and uh, great with spreadsheets. I mean, I'm just saying, just throwing it out there. You know, you might want to consider his administrative skills because look what happens. Verse 2, and the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman. Doesn't say when he took it from Haman, but 
and gave it to Mordecai after Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. So the king takes all of Haman's stuff, gives it to Esther. Esther takes all of Haman's stuff, gives it to Mordecai. So Mordecai is given position and power and prestige and all this sort of thing. Esther is still safe uh, in, in the palace. And so it's kind of set up here in verses 1 and 2 for them to live happily ever after. They're safe in the palace. Mordecai is now second in command. He's got the king's signet ring. I mean, they're, they're good, right? The story, story's over, but let's close the book. Well, we can't do that because the edict that Haman sent out is still in effect. The, the Jewish people, the people that God has been preserving and will one day ultimately redeem, they're still under threat. So, so what, what's going to happen? What is crazy is that yet again, Esther is willing to risk her life for the people of God. I mean, remember what happens when you go before this king unannounced. What does he do? <laughs> so e even if you go look through history, you'll see carvings of this king, and he is sitting on his throne, and there are two men that stand on either side of his throne, and they both have axes. Because if you came to him unannounced and he did not extend the scepter to you, they would just cut your head off. Just like that, no problem. History records that. And so Esther, yet again, is willing to risk her life for the people of God. Esther is putting her life on the line for the people of God, while some folks today stop going to church because they got their feelings hurt. Um, so Esther is risking her life, and some folks can't find the time to serve the church or the people of God because their child's sports program takes up too much time. E oh, boy. Esther... <clears throat> Esther is risking her life for the people of God. And what's happening here is that many people in the church have walked away from the church because the pastor said something or didn't say something that offended them. I'm not saying there's never a good reason to leave a church, but I'm saying there's no legitimate, biblically-based reason for staying disconnected from the church and the people of God altogether. So Esther is going to risk her life. Look at verse 3 and 4. Then Esther spoke again to the king. I mean, the deal's kind of done, right? Haman's dead. All Haman's stuff is given to them. They take it. Mordecai's put in position. He's got the signet ring. Esther's safe in the palace, yet she returns to the king. Then Esther spoke again to the king. Now, watch this. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite, and the plot that he devised against the Jews. Okay, remember when Mordecai was in mourning? Where did he stop at? He stopped outside of the king's gate because not only were you not allowed to go to the king uninvited, you certainly did not go to the king all weepy and sad. I mean, th this king likes wine and women and partying, and, and he don't want none of that sad business in his presence. So not only does she go uninvited, but she goes with a broken heart for God's people. Look at verse 4. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. Yet again, 
Esther finds favor. This is a, a recurring theme throughout this book. Esther keeps risking her life, and she keeps getting favor uh, from the king and from those around her. And she said, if it pleased the king, and if I found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I'm pleasing in his eyes. So we, we've heard the first two before. When, when she addresses the king, she, she said the first two before, if I have found favor in his sight, but she's adding some more things here. She says, if the thing seems right before the king, so she's kind of appealing to his morality. Not sure how good a tactic that is with this king, but she appeals to his morality. And I'm pleasing in his eyes. That's a much better tactic for this king. And if I'm pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke, revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king, verse 6, for how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people, or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? She's adding all of this formal language. She has shifted from weeping at his feet to composure and using the formal language that needs to be used uh, in this court. And just look at how she is agonizing in verse 6. I cannot bear to see the calamity. I can't bear to see the destruction. I wonder, church family, if, if you feel this way about the people of God. I, I wonder if you agonize over someone else's spiritual destruction. When you, when you see someone going down a path of sin, when you see them stray and walk away from the, from the church and walk away from the promises of God and walk away from the truths of God, I wonder if you agonize the way that, that Esther agonized. I wonder if you've ever agonized over the spiritual life of your brother's and sisters in Christ, I wonder if a member has ever shared with you uh, struggles that they're going through and you just sat and, and wept with them. I wonder if a, if a mother in the church that has a child with special needs has shared her daily struggles with you and you've just sat and wept with her and prayed with her. I wonder if, if somebody has shared with you about their difficult marriage and you've just wept with them and prayed with them. I, I wonder if, if you've ever sat and spoken and talked with another member of, of the church about the broken relationship that you have with your father and you you just wept and prayed together. I wonder if you've talked with another member about their constant struggles with addiction and, and you just met together and wept together and prayed with one another. I guess another question we could ask in this very same vein is, is there another member in this church that knows you like that and are you known by them? So, so many of us would answer, no, I've, I've never sat and shared and wept and prayed with another member because I don't know anybody like that and they don't know me like that. Esther deeply cares for the people of God. Now, what will the king do with this request? So she's asking the impossible, right? The, the law of the, Mer the, 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 the Persians, like you don't, you can't revoke that. Once the king's signet ring is on there, I mean, she's asking clearly. She says, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, but it's against the law to revoke it once it's brought into law. So what will the king do? Look at verse 7. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because of the intent to lay hands on the Jews. See what he said there? What, what more do you want me to do? I, I, gave, you, I gave you Haman's house. I hung Haman on the gallows. I gave, you know, raised up Mordecai, gave him the signet ring. I, like, what more do you want from me, Esther? I, I've, I've already given you all this stuff. 
And it's so interesting the way that the king frames this. Look at, look at what he says. Look at the end of verse 7. Because he intended, that's Haman, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. Now, was that the real reason that the king decided to hang Haman on the gallows? No, <laughs> the king comes in and Esther's like on the couch and Haman's falling all over the couch and, and he yells like, oh, he, he's, you know, attacking my wife in my own house. And that's the reason that he's hung on the gallows. And so the king is actually framing this in such a way to say, I've already done enough. I've already done you and the Jewish people a solid. Like, I'm good. I've, I've, I've already hooked y'all up. I don't, I don't need to do anything else. Verse eight, but you may write, as you please, with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. Okay, not only is it really irritating that he's talking in the third person, it's also a little confusing about how this like legal system works. She's asking him to revoke a law that cannot be revoked and he says, well, look, I, I don't feel like doing anything. Here, you do it. You write whatever you want because whatever has my signet ring on it cannot be revoked. Okay, so can the thing be revoked or not? Like, what's, what's, going, what's going on here? Well, more on that in a minute when we look at the actual uh, edict that is written and goes out. Look at verse 9. The king's scribes were summoned at, at the time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day, and an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, the satraps and the governors and the officials and the provinces in India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces to each province in its own script, to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and in their language. Now, for fun Bible trivia, here you go. Verse 9 in chapter 8 of Esther is the single most longest verse in the entire Bible. Interesting, huh? Now, it has nothing to do with the sermon. Uh, it has no bearing on your spiritual formation, but there you have it. Verse 10. And he wrote in the name of the king Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent letters mounted by couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying, okay, so now, now we're getting down to what's actually written in the edict that's going out. He just said that, uh, you know, that, uh, that button you can click, get, get this by tomorrow, you get it faster. That's, that's what's happening with the king's horses there. He, he wants it to go out. He wants it to go out super fast. Here's what's actually written in this edict that goes out, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend themselves or defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods on one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. A copy of what was written was issued and a decree in every province being publicly displayed to all people and all the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on the swift horses that were used in the king's service rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. Okay, a, a couple of thoughts. I've, I've got uh, five thoughts here on exactly what's written here in, in this edict. The first is this. It seems that along with Haman's decree, calling for the destruction of all Jewish people, he also had not allowed them 
to defend themselves or to assemble. Because that's what this decree is kind of reversing. So not only was he saying that, that on this one particular day, anybody who wanted to could attack the Jewish people, it also seems like he was not allowing them to assemble together and was making it illegal for them to defend themselves. So what this decree is saying is that, yeah, we're not, uh, so sometimes what would happen is like, you know, when people start to gather together and arm themselves, governments kind of freak out a little bit and think, oh, these guys could rebel and overthrow the kingdom, and they kind of get nervous. And so it seems like they had outlawed the Jewish people assembling and arming themselves. So what this decree is saying is, hey, Jewish people, you don't have to fight the, the, the mob alone. You can actually assemble, arm yourselves, and defend yourselves. It seems like that's what it's saying. Now, commentators go back and forth at the end of verse 11, and we're kind of getting in some sticky territory. Look at it, because it says, to kill and annihilate any armed force of any people that might attack them, children and women included. What does that mean? Um, So uh, one way to look at this verse is this. It's saying that the Jewish people can defend their women and children. So, so you can read it that way if, if you want to. Okay, so verse 11, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather, defend their lives, to destroy, kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included. So if anybody attacks the Jewish people's women and children, they can kill them. That's one way to read it. But actually, church family, in the Hebrew, that's actually not the intent. This edict is saying that whoever attacks the Jewish people, women and children included, they're allowed to kill. And so uh, at at this point, we're, we're kind of feeling a little bit uncomfortable. If this decree is giving them the right to kill innocent women and children, then that is clearly evil. Can everybody agree on that? If this decree is giving them the right to kill innocent women and children, that's evil. But I do not believe or think that is what is happening here. It's saying that they have the right to defend their lives against anyone uh, who would attack them. This decree is about self-defense. So here's the idea. There were entire families, entire Persian families, including women and including children, who planned on attacking the Jewish people and taking all their stuff. Again, if, if, you, if you know anything about history or, or look at what happened during the Holocaust, there were entire families that attacked Jewish people, including women and children. There were entire families that drugged Jewish people off into trains and, and sent them away to work camps. I mean, it, so that's what's happening here. Entire families had planned on attacking the Jewish people, and this edict makes it okay for them to defend themselves against any violence at all whatsoever. What's interesting, in addition, is at the end of verse 11, they're also given permission to plunder the goods of the people that are attacking them. Now, if you're reading ahead into chapter 9, you actually discover that the repeated language throughout chapter 9 is that they killed these people who were attacking them, and they do not take their goods. We'll talk about more uh, on that next week. Number four, so even though it is vengeance, look at verse 13. So verse 13 says, a copy was sent out, all the peoples, the Jewish, be ready to take vengeance on their enemies. So even though it's vengeance, it's only towards their enemies. This is vengeance towards their enemies. This is self 
defense because we know that vengeance is not inherently evil because God takes vengeance, but this has a regulator on it. The vengeance is against those who are attacking them. Last, in a sense, this decree does not revoke the other decree. It kind of nullifies it. So the plan was for these isolated Jewish families to not be able to defend themselves, to not be able to arm themselves, to not be able to gather, and they were going to be all attacked on, a, on, a different, on this particular day. And what this says is, nope, if you're going to attack us, we're going to be together, we're going to be organized, and we're going to be armed. So do your best. So what's also interesting about uh, this section 10 through 14 is if you go back and read Haman's decree, almost the exact same language is used, to kill, to annihilate, destroy, so on and so forth. You can go back and compare the two, and you'll see that this is, again, God reversing uh, evil that had been intended to his people. Verse 15, then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced, and the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor in every province and every city. Wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews and a feast and a holiday. What is so (laughs) interesting yet again uh, is that you remember Haman's bright idea when the king said, hey, Haman, I'm going to honor somebody. What do you think I should do? Right? Haman's like, want the robes, man, the, the robes and the crown and the horse, and, the, and the, that, that's what Haman was asking for. But, but here Haman is now hanging dead on the gallows, and Mordecai is in the robes, on the horse, with the crown. And not only that, if you remember, what did the king tell everybody they had to do when Haman came? Oh, they had to bow. They had to honor him. It was, it was mandated by the king. Here, there's no mandate by the king to honor Mordecai. Everybody's just honoring him uh, because of his service to the Jewish people and to the kingdom. Now, this last statement is very surprising and should be shocking to us. Remember, this is, this is a diverse but yet very pagan community. Look at what it says. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews. Wow! For fear had fallen on them. Now, I would love to go back in that time and ask those people a hundred questions because I want to know, like, is, is this actual conversion? Like, did these people convert, like, for real convert to Judaism? I mean, because look at what they're seeing. They, they saw from the outside a pagan uh, official, Haman, who was targeting this people group and, and was trying to kill all of them. And then all of a sudden, the, the people group that was being targeted, the Jews, there's Mordecai, who everybody knows is a Jew. He's riding on uh, the, the king's horses in the king's robes, wearing a crown. Everybody's going, hey, y'all, y'all don't want to mess with that guy. And specifically, you don't want to mess with that guy's God. Because, yeah, I mean, it, it goes, there's Haman on the, on the pole. You, you want to end up over there? Or do you want to, yeah, we're just... You, you guys want to be Jews? Yeah, we're in. We're Jews now. Sign us up. Is there something we sign? What, you know, what, what happens here? It, it says, and many of the peoples declared themselves Jews. So I don't know if this is actual true conversion to Judaism 
or if it was just like, hey, we're gonna, like, we're standing with our Jewish brothers, we, we love them, we're for them, and we definitely don't want their God, you know, like, against us, that's, that's for sure. Here, here's what we know from this text. Mordecai's life put on display the benefits of being connected to the people of God. Think about that. Mordecai's life, as, as you're seeing him ride down uh, the, through the, the streets of the kingdom, in, in the royal robe, on the royal horse, wearing the crown, his life is putting on display the beauty and all of the benefits of being a part of the people of God, the true people of God. I wonder this morning, can you answer yes to any of these questions I regularly pray for other church members, and I know they are praying for me. Can you answer yes to that, church family? I regularly give and receive encouragement from other members of Gospel Community Church. Can you answer yes to that? I serve and am served by other members of this church. I am truly known by others, and I know them too. I regularly share meals with other members, and this is a regular practice in my family. Listen to me very carefully. Being deeply connected to a local church does not save you, but it is evidence that you are saved. We believe that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. So no amount of church attendance, no amount of of connectivity to the church saves you. But if you are regularly living in rhythms with the people of God, that is praying together, sharing meals together, encouraging one another, weeping with one another, rejoicing with one another. If you are regularly in those rhythms, that is evidence that you are saved. That is evidence that you truly are a part of the people of God. Well, let me take us back to the question that I began with. Here's the question again. If I have received his salvation, have we embraced his people? If we have received the salvation that comes from through grace alone and Christ alone, have we then embraced God's people? You see, salvation, a part of the salvation process, if if you know your ordo salutis, my, my deacons in the room that went through systematic theology. If you know your order of salutis, your order of salvation, you know that uh, it, it's not just justification, it's not just sanctification, but there's another part of salvation, which is adoption, M- meaning this, that, that you are declared righteous. That's justification. Imagine yourself in the courtroom and, and, and all of your sins are being listed off. All the ways that, that you have gone against God have been listed off. And, and God the Father bangs the gavel and says, not guilty, right? That, that is justification. And as a matter of fact, he takes all of Jesus' good works and gives them to you. So you are declared free, you are declared forgiven. That's justification. But then here's the crazy part. You got to get this picture in your mind. Then the judge, God the Father, gets up off of the bench and comes around and kneels down and he hugs you and he signs the adoption papers so that you might come into his family. We're adopted into the family of God. So if, if we have received his salvation, have we embraced his people? Just listen to 1 Peter 2.9. My sermon's almost done. I got a few more minutes, but I want to preach 1 Peter 2.9. Here's what it says. But you are a chosen race. You are a chosen race, meaning God has handpicked you because he loved you. You are a chosen race. You are a royal 
priesthood. Oh my goodness, a royal priesthood. You know what that means? The, the priesthood was separate from all the rest of the people of God. They were otherly. They, only they could go into the Holy of Holies in the temple. But when Jesus Christ came and died on the cross, it absolutely leveled the playing field. As a matter of fact, the curtain in the temple was ripped from top to bottom, allowing all to come freely into the throne room of grace. So now we are not only a chosen race, but we are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, meaning that at Gospel Community Church, we are not united by, by our view of politics. Amen? We're actually a part of a whole new nation, which is the nation of God. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Here it is again, a people, a people for his own possession that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Every single one of those things, chosen race, royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Do you see what all of those have in common. All of those have in common this. They have a corporate nature to them. They have a corporate identity. It's not just an individual Christian that is now to proclaim the, the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness in a, in a marvelous light. It is us together as the people of God. We are a chosen race. We are a royal priesthood. We are a people for his own possession. If you're taking notes, Christians have a corporate identity, not just an individual relationship. We always say here at Gospel Community Church that you were saved from something and you were also saved to something. You were saved from Satan, sin, death, and you were saved to something, a mission and a family. Amen? That, that is what Jesus has done on the cross. If you're taking notes, Christians are not bound together by any ethnic or national identity. Help me today, somebody. We are not bound together by any ethnic or national identity, nor our economic standing or our ability to follow the rules, but we are united under the identity that Jesus has purchased with his blood. That's how we are United Church family. We, Jesus has purchased a new identity for us, which is the people of God, and he purchased that with his blood, and that is what unites us. So as we close this morning, I, I want to speak to the professing Christian, the professing Christian who is not deeply connected to a local church. I want to ask you this question. Here's my question to the professing Christian who's not connected to a church. What obstacles have you put between you and the people of God, the local church? What obstacles have you put there? Is it your schedule? Is, is it false belief that you can get Jesus without getting his bride? Is, is it your kids' sports thing? Is it, what, what obstacles have you put there? Now I want to speak to the believer who is connected what obstacles have you put between yourself and other members of the church? So let, let's say that you are, I mean, you, you've been attending, maybe, maybe you're even a member. What obstacles have you put between yourself and other members to really let them in, to really let them know who you are? Is it your pride? You, you don't want them to know that stuff because then what would, what would they think? What would they say if they really knew that you are what the Bible says you are, a broken sinner in need of Jesus. Come on, church family. There, there is so much beauty in what God has for us in being the people of God. And in order to be the people of God, we must walk in the rhythms of the people of God, giving our lives to one another. Amen. And the reason that we give our lives to one another 
is because Jesus has given his life for us. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for this great book of Esther. We thank you for Esther's compassion and her love for your people. God, we thank you that you use crooked kings, you use evil officials, you use imperfect people like Esther and Mordecai to do this mighty work of preserving and redeeming your people. God, may we be united, not in any ethnicity, nor national identity, nor economic background, but may we be the people of God who are united in the identity that you have purchased for us with your blood on the cross. May we be united in the gospel, in the gospel alone. May we be so united and loving each other and sharing our lives with other people that the same would happen for the people in Persia, that they would look and maybe see the lives that we live and, and want to know and want to be a part of a forever family. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Feel free to share the contents of this podcast, but please do not alter it in any way without permission. Please like, follow, and subscribe to us on Facebook or iTunes. Visit gospelcc.com for more content like this. At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. Thanks again and have a blessed day.